you get you come into the cafe and uh, you're really there and uh, the play unfolds around you and kind of just hearkening back to what I was saying earlier about art being a way of understanding the world including understanding history and it also can create a lot of empathy because you're really there you are able to maybe think of yourself more as a historical actor, you're a witness to history, and then it creates like a lot of empathy for the characters, which then hopefully creates empathy for the trans community as well. That was Katie Conry, the Tenderloin Museum's executive director. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco, a podcast all about the artists, activists, and small businesses that make this city what it is. This episode picks up where we left off in part one, with a deep dive into tenderloin history. That leads Katie to share the story of a tenderloin museum-produced play about the Compton's Cafe riots. And that takes us to Aunt Charlie's, the last queer bar left in the neighborhood. We end with a new neon sign located above the corner of Eddie and Leavenworth, just outside the museum. Here's Katie. We didn't open with having an art gallery, okay. but we uh, kind of created one pretty quickly. It's, I think, a really, I mean, a way of connecting with the community. You know, it's a, having a rotating art gallery when you have a permanent exhibition. It's a way for people, reason for people to come it's back. people in, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As well. Um, and yeah, I think that we've never, like, we are the intersection of art history and community and we've never mm. like thought of those things as being like uh, different to mm-hmm. some degree mm-hmm. you know i think that um art is like a really powerful way of understanding the world mm-hmm. and so it's a really powerful way of understanding history and i mean, talking about like some of our well the Compton's Cafeteria Riot. Yes. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> so that's a, a major uh, historical event that we've championed here. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a, that's a classic example of, of what I'm talking about. Um, but to just back up a bit to sure. give a little bit more context on that. Sure. Um, and just to maybe jump back into Tenderloin history. Um, I mean, the Tenderloin was effectively shut down by these new laws that they passed, like limiting where women could independently go on their own um, so in the 1917. the won. Briefly. For a time. For a time. Mm-hmm. And they, Tenderloin kind of managed to bounce right back because of prohibition. Oh, right. Because then all nightlife kind of went underground. Right. And Literally. San Francisco was all, always wet. Mm-hmm. Um, so the you know 20s, 30s, 40s is when the Tenderloin is really like this glitzy, seedy nightlife capital mm. of the Bay Area. Okay. You know, you had um, bars, restaurants. Uh, sometimes those bars and restaurants also had gambling and brothels. Mm. So it's kind of like this underground economy and above ground economy, like, working together mm-hmm. there's not really much of a separation between the two mm-hmm. also in the 40s uh san francisco and the tenderloin is very much impacted by world war ii mm-hmm. 
Um, and again, that high density of affordable housing. Um, I mean, San Francisco is a major port for service people going to the Pacific Theater. Mm -hmm. And so you had a, a ton of service people um, staying in kind of like the SROs, um, particularly uh, there's like opportunities for people who from more conservative areas to maybe like explore their queerness mm -hmm. um, and in a time where obviously that, you know, was incredibly underground. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the that's the beginning of San Francisco in general, even becoming like an area known as a gay area. Mecca. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. the gay Mecca. Mm -hmm. and, San, and the Tenderloin in general was kind of support starting to support that um, community and nightlife that was uh, developing around it. Yeah. Um, Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, the, the army wasn't huge about it. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> yeah. Um, in some cases, like bars would even have uh, lockers where you, so you could change out of your service uniform in case there was a raid. Oh. It was like less. And some cases, like the army would like give these, uh, produce these like sheets that said like, these bars are off limits to go to. So if, if that's what you're interested though, then that's just a map of places to Great go. <laughs> yeah, yes. So that worked out. Yeah. And so then also there was kind of moral reforming that then was happening in that mid-century time as well. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, George Mayer Christopher specifically like had a real vendetta against the Tenderloin. Mm -hmm. um, his brother got into some legal trouble in the neighborhood okay. related to kind of like nightlife underground activities mm. and he kind of blamed the neighborhood and thought it was a blight mm -hmm. on San Francisco. Scapegoating. Yeah, so mm -hmm. his uh, he basically like cracked down on gambling effectively enough to that it, the practice actually ended. Mm -hmm. and um, Hypocritically, I'm sure, too. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, he also did some other things to decimate the neighborhood. Like, he removed, like, the cable cars, which were the main public mm. transit. Mm -hmm. He wanted to make all... He made the streets one way because he wanted to think of the Tenderloin as uh, just an extension of Union Square. So mm. you don't need to stop. Just get there as quickly as wow. possible. Mm -hmm. Um and like I mentioned, like the connection between the underground and above ground economy. Mm. So um, once that's that kind of decimated the economy of the Tenderloin, it's basically like the 50s into the 60s. And that was like the is beginning the first of... time it's ever been referred to as an ec economically depressed area. Okay. So then... Um, I was going to say that the beginning 50s, especially 40s, 50s, the beginning of car culture... And when they made Gary Boulevard. Sure, yeah. And it's like, yeah, get what you're talking about, like the one way streets to get out of and get basically to the freeway. Yeah. To get you to the suburbs. Yeah. That are still San Francisco. And there's maybe not as much of a need to like stay at like one of the downtown hotels overnight, just get yeah. to the suburbs. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, in the 60s is. Um, well, I mean, we all know what happened in San Francisco in the <laughs> 60s. A lot of people kind of, youths particularly, like, rejecting, like, mainstream values mm -hmm. kind of flooded San Francisco. Mm -hmm. A lot of the ones that were kind of exploring a queer identity ended mm -hmm. up in the Tenderloin. Mm -hmm. So you see a lot of, like, organizing happening around um, the churches. 
Okay. Um, churches were really foundational to the beginning of the modern civil, gay civil rights movement, right. um, particularly Glide. Right. Um, so Susan Stryker, who's a trans historian, we've, we work with a lot. It's a real friend of the museums. She's the one that kind of rediscovered the Compton's Cafeteria Riot and made the film Screaming Queens. Oh, okay. She has described Glide as like the midwife of the modern LGBTQ civil Excellent. rights movement. Yeah. So there's a group called the Vanguard. Um, that was like a kind of a radical queer youth organization mm-hmm. um, that was starting. And this is like, I mean, this is like years before Stonewall. This right. is like, you know, before like unofficially the gay civil rights movement even started right. in like the official record. Um, this is very early, um, early 60s. Okay. And so we have that kind of organizing happening. And then there's also um, like a lot of uh women identifying as trans or like queens at the time mm-hmm. um, that uh, are living in kind of these SRO hotels, um, particularly at Gone Turk and Eddy Street. So you see like that community kind of forming, you know, in the city okay. for the first time. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of them, you know, worked as sex workers. There wasn't really like a lot of means for legal employment for, yeah. for um, the queer community. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them you know, frequented Compton's Cafeteria um, as, like, one of the only places in the city that would actually serve them. Mm -hmm. Which is intersection of... Turk and Taylor. Turk and Taylor. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the Vanguard also frequented this establishment. So you kind of have these kind of, like, younger rebel rousers and maybe, like, some of these older trans women sex workers kind of all all meeting and talking at at Compton's. Mm -hmm. And then... um, you know, there's some protesting that's happening over like the way that they're being treated there yeah. um, that I think was like spearheaded by the vanguard. Um, and then, you know, 1966, the police did a raid of Compton's and famously then a trans woman poured a hot cup of coffee in his face. And then uh, the whole diner erupted and fought back against like this police harassment, police brutality and kicked them out of the restaurant. Um, and it's, I mean, one of the first known militant like responses to police harassment right. in U.S. history mm-hmm. um, by the queer community, and uh, was kind of essentially like lost, lost to history. Like hmm. there is a couple of, of articles about it, but it was buried. Why do you think that is? Stonewall, um, or, you know, or was Stonewall originally? I don't. Um, happened at a different time. Yes. So I think uh, the movement was even farther along by the time Stonewall happened. And there was an effort. I mean, New York is like a media capital of the country. There was an effort kind of right away to memorialize it where um, the same thing just didn't happen after Compton's happened. Although by all like accounts from like the interviews Susan Dunn has done about that um, historic incident, um, there, there certainly was like a feeling of like fighting back and fighting for for rights that um, kind of permeated after the riot, right. um, but it just like was not memorialized in the same way. Like the same kind of like activists involved maybe didn't have the same kind of like media savvy. Right. Yeah. Um, I, wonder I mean, if... I'm just speculating to some degree. I don't want to officially go on the record. Yeah. That, but... I'll add one more speculation. Tell me what you think is that the tenderloin and my understanding of Stone Town is basically the West Village. 
very different neighborhoods, even two years apart, but like different yeah. neighborhoods. Yeah, definitely. Different I mean, the, cities, the, like the, you mentioned, but. I, like the media was used to ignoring like, that's what, that's what I'm getting at yeah. yeah already yeah it seems like there was a concerted effort to bury it yeah but there is enough evidence including like eyewitness testimony mm-hmm. um, and and we showed Screaming Queens the documentary our first night that uh, our first ever program yes. like the first day that we opened and it's appropriate yeah, and Susan Stryker was here, and Tamara Ching, who's interviewed in the documentary, um, who was a sex worker um, and trans woman at the time. Um, and so, I mean, it's always been, I think, promoting this historical event is so important in, like, so many ways. Like, yeah. it gives trans women, like, particularly trans women of color, back, like, their rightful place in history as mm-hmm. being at the vanguard of the movement. Um, More than just visibility. It's like, this is... They led the movement. Important. Yeah. Right. And I mean, it's uh, also gives San Francisco and the Tenderloin then back its rightful place in history as like the beginning of the movement. Mm -hmm. And I mean, uh, one of the major stories that people know about San Francisco and queer civil rights is Harvey Milk and the Castro. This happened like a full 10 years before that. Yeah. And yeah, we uh, screened, well, I met. So we produced a play about the Compton's Cafeteria Riots okay, yes. <laughs> in 2018, yes. which was really like the outgrowth of um, our programming and all the work we had kind of done to promote this event and work we had done with the trans community. Um, awesome. Yeah. Where was it staged? Uh, New Village Cafe. So it's okay. immersive theater. Okay. Um, so... Uh, you get you come into the cafe and uh, you're really there and uh, the play unfolds around you and kind of just hearkening back to what I was saying earlier about art being a way of understanding the world including mm-hmm. understanding history and it also can create a lot of empathy because mm-hmm. you're really there you are able to maybe think of yourself more as a historical actor mm-hmm. you're a witness to history and then it creates like a lot of empathy for the characters which then hopefully creates empathy for the trans community as well right um and just gives you a real emotional connection to history yeah and i mean the play was wildly successful you know it sold out all of its run and and we've been working to bring it back who wrote it donna persona colette legrand and mark nasser are the writers of the play um Donna and Colette are both like trans women who were involved in like the Tenderloin in the sixties and went to Compton's. Okay. And I introduced them. I had met Mark, um, who was like a bartender in the area and was one of the, uh, originators of Tony and Tina's wedding. That oh, was, yeah. uh, what gave it the immersive, uh, yes. <laughs> um, bent idea background. Mm-hmm. Um, and I introduced them at a program at the Tenderloin Museum when we screened James Hosking's Beautiful by Night, which is about uh, drag, well, you know, aging drag performers at Aunt Charlie's, which is our bar. Have you been to Aunt Charlie's? I have. It's been, been some time. Um, I know a little bit about Aunt Charlie's, but let's hear more. I mean, it's just an incredible community space. It's, I call it the Tenderloin's living room, and it is the last queer bar in the Tenderloin, which, as we talked about, was like a major queer hub. Yes. Um, the first gay neighborhood in San Francisco. 
Um, it's just a really special space. I mean, they have it's a real community feel. I, everyone who like lives and works in the neighborhood kind of passes through there at some point. I mean, they also have incredible drag shows, and we've been partnering with them um, okay. pretty much since we opened. Mm. In 2019, we produced a series of art shows about Aunt Charlie's. Oh, excellent. Century, Here at the museum? Yeah, yes. Centering Queer Artists uh, that did portraits of different uh, performers at Aunt Charlie's. Um, mm -hmm. We did four different art shows, um, and it's one of my favorite things we've ever done, and an oral histories project as well. Nice, and you got it in right before the pandemic, it sounds like. Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah. And that was uh, the most fun um, <laughs> art openings that we've ever had, because all the performers that were featured in the show came to perform for the opening. Yes, it wasn't just people so. playing people, it was the people. Yeah, from, the art it was left off the wall. Yes, I bet it got. <laughs> and I performed bet it did. for what, you. Um, how long has Aunt Charlie's been there? Like, when when did it open? Do you know who opened it? That that story. Yeah, Aunt Charlie's itself is from the '80s, okay. but it's been a queer bar for mm -hmm. a lot longer than that. Mm -hmm. It used to be called the Queen Mary. Okay. And all of, I mean, Turk Street was um, filled with gay bars, mm -hmm. so it was one of many. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of like the last survivor yeah. and an incredibly important like anchor for the queer community that's in the neighborhood. Absolutely. Our art show series was called uh, Aunt Charlie's San Francisco's Working Class Drag Bar. Yes, I love it. Yeah. So Turk and what's the, what is its cross chain? Uh, it's very close to Turk and Taylor, which is the site oh, yeah. of the Compton's Cafeteria. Right, right, right yeah, there. I mean, if you walk outside, you can see it basically across the street. So then the three of them worked like for a year meeting every week to like write the script, which is then based on like their experiences. Right. So we had a plan to produce the play in 2020. So obviously oh. that didn't happen. Oops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we were going to produce it in, um, in kind of an existing cafe space that wasn't currently being used. Um, and I mean, we've been working like since then, basically, to bring it back, Get and it back. now we're okay. really close to being able to do that. Excellent. So, so it's a really exciting opportunity. Yeah. Um, I mean, Mark, Donna, and Colette are still very much involved. Uh, Ezra Reeves has joined the team. Um, he's going to direct and is a producer as well. Um, and we leased a space. Okay. On Larkin Street. Okay. To produce this play year round. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. We're that's opening awesome. a new business, basically. Well. In line with what you're doing. Yeah, I mean it's this not... the play is incredible. Yeah. Um it's you know, it's a huge leap of faith in some ways because it's, you know, releasing a whole new space and basically starting a business. But I mean it's a leap of faith for an incredible project that we really believe in mm -hmm. and uh i there's more opportunities for vacant storefronts now and um, there just wasn't a restaurant that it was possible to produce it in so we're right. creating like a set of a cafe <laughs> for you to be able to see that see is, the play in a cafe it is kind of a lot to ask a restaurant to be like can we borrow <laughs> For yeah. Unspecified time. I mean, if it's it's like it kind of works out if they're closed in the evenings, right? Kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Right. 
but um, there just wasn't. We were, I mean, last time we um, produced it on Polk Street, which is close to the neighborhood, but obviously a different neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And it was just a huge priority to have it in the actual boundaries of the Tenderloin for this production. Right. Um, like we want to you know, promote positive activations in the neighborhood. So what are the actual boundaries of the Tenderloin? Uh, well, you can look up at this map on our ceiling. Yes, I'll um, definitely get a photo of that. The Tenderloin is north of Market Street in mm. definition, mm -hmm. um, up to Geary, um, over to Mason, over to Polk on either side. Okay, Mason um, to Polk, east and west. Yeah, um, I mean, there's this is like the official boundaries. We have another map of it too I can show you. But obviously, like, you know, it's a... It's a little bit more fluid than sure, <laughs> strict boundaries, sure, but these sure. are, and, and the definition of the, where the Tenderloin is has changed throughout history too. Sure. But this is the generally agreed upon modern yeah. definition. And I do love a good um, three-dimensional ceiling map. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> That's yeah, excellent. and it lights up. I mean, I think, yeah, by its very definition, the Tenderloin is north of Market Street and like south of Geary Boulevard, right. I mean, basically. North and, and south ends. And ends, like, before you get to Union Square. Right. Yeah. We've got a lot of excellent stuff. I do want, if you can, to talk about the new sign. Yes. I am in, like, utter, like, I follow SF Hi. Neon, and when I saw that they were, I, first it was, for me, I was like, they're doing the Cadillac, and then I was like, wait, oh, wait. There's more to it than that. Yeah, so we also do a lot of neon restoration work. We're the fiscal sponsors of San Francisco Neon, which oh, basically okay. means that they're like a nonprofit under our umbrella. Oh. So, you know, they can apply for like grants and things to produce. Like we do a neon symposium um, every year. I mean, they do the neon symposium. We help, <laughs> um, which is like international event mm -hmm. um, with neon enthusiasts. And, uh, yeah, we connected about being their fiscal sponsor back in, like, 2016. Okay. And it's just been a really fruitful collaboration. Um, you know, we've collaborated on, like, art shows, walking, neon walking tours, mm -hmm. um, lots of public programming events. I mean, they're... We think of uh, neon as the intersection of art, history, and safety, Hmm. You know, there's more neon signs in place in the Tenderloin than any other place in San Francisco. I mean, San Makes Francisco sense. already has a ton of uh, neon signs, mm -hmm. but the Tenderloin has the most. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, historic, it's historically interesting. It's mm -hmm. artistically interesting. Mm -hmm. It adds street lighting. Um, and it's just kind of a beautiful, popular thing. Like, there's mm -hmm. just... Neon enthusiasts are very passionate people. Yes. It's been some of our, like, it's just a fun way of exploring history. Mm -hmm. It's been some of our real blockbuster programming. You know, they really come out for things. And then, yeah. um, you know, while they're here, they can learn about other things in Tunnerlin history. Um, and so there was a photograph that was found through, like, San Francisco Remembered Facebook group mm -hmm. of a, that the Cadillac's like huge neon sign, which our founder, like Randy Shaw hadn't seen, Kathy Looper hadn't seen. So this Kathy is back from when it was an actual hotel. Right. Um, so yeah, I guess a little background on the Cadillac that we're in the ground floor of, mm -hmm. um, Kathy and Leroy Looper bought it in 1978, I believe. Mm -hmm. And at that point it was, you know, kind of a classic 
it's like a microcosm of the of Tenderloin history mm-hmm. um, in a way because it kind of was a fancy hotel when it was built. Um, it kind of had become de facto uh, housing and then kind of then had become housing for poor people. Okay. And they bought it, um, this beautiful but like decaying building from 1908 and they renovated it and didn't like displace a single resident and turned it into like the first non-profit supportive housing on the west coast oh wow so then that that became like a, a model um that's still practiced in the neighborhood today okay you know if you walk around and see like a lot of neon signs or other signs that say hotel it's often SRO hotels that is residential housing, um, often, often supportive housing. I'm thinking of that movie that's kind of circulating now, Home is a Hotel, which right. there, there are Tenderloin stories in that movie. Yeah, absolutely. We screened that at the museum recently. Excellent movie mm-hmm. yeah. that everyone should try and to see. Sylvester is a friend of the museums as well, the okay. artist involved oh, yeah. in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, Kathy Looper, even though she had been in the neighborhood since the late 70s, and own the ton- the Cadillac since that time still had not seen this seen photo. So this photo looks like it's probably from the forties. Okay. Of this, you know, it was news to everyone and everyone was really excited about it. Yeah. Um we based on some information we had received, kind of uh were under the assumption that it would be uh because it's like a recreation of a sign, mm-hmm. that it would be under like the vintage sign designation code. Oh um but that was not correct. Okay. Um, I mean, I should also say that, uh, so the Tenderloin and SF, Tenderloin Museum and SF Neon also do like neon restoration work in the neighborhood. Okay. Like we have an initiative with the city to like help restore neon signs in the Tenderloin neighborhood. So it's often just connecting, um, prioritizing signs for repair and connecting like the business owners with different funding available to them from the city, like through SF Shines, which interestingly enough is like a city beautification and at one point you could use that money to remove neon signs when they were considered blight and now it can be used to repair neon signs now that they're considered beautiful again so cultural attitudes yeah (laughs) Yeah. towards neon has really changed yeah um and so the idea was to have the original side one side say cadillac the original and then the other side would say just tenderloin so it could be a sign for the entire neighborhood and uh, we got some funding from a city grant called the Community Challenge Grant and from Magic Cabinet, a foundation we work with. And we had all our paperwork filled out and ready to go. And then they told us, like, there's no way that this counts as, like, <laughs> uh, under that ordinance. It's mm-hmm. just there's n- nothing of the original sign left. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were like, talk to your supervisor. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we had been redistricted. It just changed. So we uh, yeah. reached out to like Dean Preston, and his aide Kyle was extremely helpful in getting um, a vintage sign ordinance passed for the Tenderloin. So oh. you are now in the Tenderloin Historic Neon Sign District. Okay. <laughs> where there's different sign laws for specifically neon signs. Yeah, I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> we have some t-shirts, <laughs> they don't go into that kind of detail. Um, so this was like a, I mean, it took us like three years basically yeah. to get this sign yeah. um, installed. It was a very lengthy process, but in doing so, we had lots of meetings with the Tenderline Central City SRO Collaborative about 
the neon restoration work they were super supportive like the that group and a few other groups had put together like this contact statement about like the tenderloin's priorities and they had specifically listed neon so like, the, the neighborhood really loves it yeah like you know we had sro residents talking about like the renovations that had happened on like the sign in their buildings and how mm. much they loved it and how it was like they got to see this work of art when they were coming home every day yeah so i mean it got us like you know it was good community building outreach and yeah yeah, yeah. that's great and I mean the sign lining ceremony was like a lovely community event yes and like the supervisor was here and um had great energy and the sign looks beautiful worth yeah. it worth it yeah I'll get some <laughs> shots up for our listeners can we wrap um with every season on our podcast we have a theme and our theme this season is we are all in it I just want to know what that means to you. Take your time. Uh, I think we are all in it. Um, everything we do affects somebody else. <laughs> and uh, maybe we're more aware of that than we were in the past, but we all belong to a cultural ecosystem. And we are all in this together and all boats rise together. That was Katie Conry, Executive Director of the Tenderloin Museum. On the next episode, meet San Francisco-born and raised artist Milan Allen. Episode 8 drops next Tuesday, wherever you get podcasts. Music for Storied San Francisco was produced, performed, and curated by Otis McDonald. Aaron Lim of Bitch Talk Podcast is our contributing producer, and the show is produced and hosted by me, Jeff Hunt. Now in our sixth season, we have more than 200 episodes available on our website, storiedsf.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're able to, please rate and review the show, and drop us a line at storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Keep rejecting those silly doom loop narratives about our city, Stay wacky, weird, healthy, and creative. And we'll see you next time on Storied San Francisco. We acknowledge and respect the first humans of the unceded land we call San Francisco, the Ramaytoshaloni. We condemn the genocide of these and other tribes across the Western Hemisphere. We honor their legacy and history and we support rematriation and sovereignty efforts. This podcast is a proud member of the BFF.FM podcast network. Learn more at podcast.bff.fm. BFF.FM, best frequencies forever.